What's going on guys? My name is Alden Hero and welcome to episode 77 of The Midnight Hour. I'm joined today by recurring guest Dr. John and we have a really interesting discussion about whether or not a government could control the thoughts and maybe even the minds of its citizens. We start off by exposing flaws in our perceptions of memory and what it actually means to remember or recall something. Then the conversation evolves into real instances of how a person's memory can be altered and how people can conform to a higher authority figure, instructing them to act in a certain way, possibly even against their will. It's a super interesting conversation that draws some disturbing conclusions, I think, but more so I think that you guys will really enjoy it. To discuss this episode or anything else relating to the podcast, please check out our subreddit, which is reddit.com slash or slash midnight hour, or you can check out our Twitter or Instagram. Those things will be linked in the description. You can listen on SoundCloud or on YouTube, and if you're listening on either platform, you can leave a comment or a like on either. I'd really appreciate it, and if you're listening on iTunes, I would really love it if you could leave a rating, and if you want to listen on iTunes, that link will be in the description. Not too much of a, an in-depth intro today. I think the conversation will be relatively easy to follow in the sense that it's fairly standard for the types of discussions that myself and Dr. John have had since his um, arrival on the show and I think he's a really good guest and I recently sort of made a discussion on the subreddit asking what your favorite kinds of episodes are and I was really interested and excited by the diversity of the kinds of episodes you guys enjoy so that's really good and next week's one will be completely different to this week's one and uh, I just hope that you guys are really enjoying the show and the kind of episodes I want to carry into 2017 and beyond the episode opened with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles theme song because I have not been able to get it out of my head recently and this will seem like the worst attempt to relate it to the topic ever, but my memory of it was completely different to the way that it actually is. And I was able to get maybe the first 15 seconds of it were like perfect in my memory of it. And then it kind of turned into um, like a, a Ramon song or something in my head. Like the way that this version on YouTube is, is completely different to the one that I used to listen to on Cartoon Network back in the day when I was like in single digits in terms of my years old. But um, it's a catchy as hell song, even though it's kind of terrible. Like, I can listen to the first, like, minute of it, and then I get, like, really annoyed with it. So hopefully that doesn't happen to you. And if it does, hey, just skip ahead, like, 30 seconds, and you'll get to the actual discussion. With all that out of the way, before you is episode 77 of The Midnight Hour. I really hope you guys will enjoy it, and I really hope you guys will leave a comment and a like. And I'll talk to you at the end. Peace. So I, I think the main flaw in people's perception of memory is the idea that it's a filing cabinet from which you just pull a file and you're like, oh, this is the memory of the time that I did whatever. And then you open the file and then you have a perfectly preserved still recording of the thing. And you can just weave through that image as you want and be like, oh, yeah, that's right. It says this on this number plate on the car that was behind me in my memory and stuff like that. But in reality, that's not how memory works at all. Like, you don't... Your memory is, is reliable maybe, like, 25% of the time. But other than that, um, what I what I heard when I was researching it was that roughly 75% of the things in your memories are completely negligible. 
um, such as just little details like what color t-shirt a person was wearing because your mind, your brain can only take in so many images um, like in a day. So it sort of automatically fills in the rest and thinking of your memory as a filing cabinet where you can just take stuff out of the vault is a huge flaw in your ability to actually conceive of memories, I think. Exactly. And it sort of goes back to the fundamental dichotomy between the objective and the subjective and the fact that we need to sort of uh, perceive memory in that light, for instance, that if we're taking everything in in a subjective way, then it goes without saying that the memories we store in relation to those perceptions are also subjective and not kind of as they are in themselves, like in the objective world. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, um, it's, what you're s- like, it, it's preposterous for us to assume that because we can recall something from five years ago that we have every inst- like every single instance of that image perfected in our minds somewhere. Exactly. And I thought it was really interesting there where you were saying that we sort of fill in the gaps cognitively or perceptually. Like, for instance, everybody right now who's listening, no matter what you are looking at, you've absolutely no awareness of the fact that there is a blind spot in your visual field which correlates to the area in your retina which picks up the light in your eye where your optic nerve leaves your retina and enters your brain so we actually don't perceive that blind spot at all and the reason for that is because our brain fills in the gap of it our brain doesn't want us to have a a blind spot in our visual field it wants to fill it in and to make it seem like there's a seamless visual perceptual capacity of our brains because it's just not functional or doesn't add survival to have this like imagine if there's a predator on the horizon coming up but he's in our blind spot so we can't even see him um yeah so yeah just our, our brains just like to fill in the gaps they like to provide a seamless perception of rea- of reality as we experience it there was a test done in um one of the major universities in in america i think this was done in the 90s um, but it was basically there's uh, two basketball teams and one of them has black shirts and the other one has white shirts. And you're supposed to count how many times the people with the white shirts pass the ball to one another. And while you're watching the the video of it happening and they're passing the ball and you're counting how many times they pass it, um, like you have to keep a lot of focus because basketball is quite a, a fast sport and the the um, the park that they play on <laughs> the park the court that they play on is quite enclosed so anyway a gorilla a man in a gorilla costume steps into the corner of the video while this is occurring yeah and most people don't spot that gorilla there at all when they do exactly it because they're focusing I, so hard on pa- exactly classes. when i was studying psychology my lecture actually showed that video to the class the name of the video for anyone who wants to google it is gorillas in our midst um, after the movie Gorillas in the Mist with Sigourney Weaver, sort of a play on words. Yeah. But I actually completely missed the gorilla. I was counting the amount of basketball passes. And then after I did it, I was like, oh my God, yeah, I got it. It was like 16 or 17. He was like, okay, watch it again, but don't count the passes. Just watch yeah. what happens. And you literally see a man in a gorilla suit walking. You're like, how on earth did I miss that? Yeah, It's, it's absolutely absurd. Yeah, and but that's just like, that's an example of you not remembering something but you in the present looking at Mm -hmm. something and completely missing something so like again just it's preposterous to assume that we remember everything with such accuracy Um, exactly i've always thought that movies play like a huge part in 
our ability to perceive our memories because you'll always see in a movie like there's this old trope of someone recalling something and looking for other <laughs> details in the memory it's oh just, god it's yeah not how it works you can't no, do that exactly um yeah no it's absolutely ridiculous and i don't even like to think of the amount of money i would have bet if someone after the first time i watched that video they're like so there was a gorilla there did you see that and i'd be like no and they'd be like yeah. okay so how much do you want to bet that there was and I, I i don't even want to think of how much money i would have bet that there was no gorilla in that video like it's absolutely crazy to think of it like have you heard of um, Elizabeth Loftus? No. She's a cognitive psychology, a c- okay. cognitive psychologist, but she's um, an expert on memory, and she's done a TED talk about how reliable your memory is. Um, it's 17 minutes long. I'd recommend everyone checks it out. But there's basically a moment in it where she says 100% of um, your memories are like they all are negligible. Like, they can all be influenced and they can all be, uh, like, shifted um, and Mm. altered. And she has made people believe that they went to Disneyland and got lost when they were kids. (laughs) And she uses... um, she uses techniques like being friendly with the person, um, like a lot of sort of uh, what you would call, like, social techniques. Like, she kind of manipulates the situation. And mm. she'll be like, yeah, remember, you were at Disneyland, and you got lost, and you went up to the the guy dressed in the Bugs Bunny costume. And anyway, the thing is that these people genuinely believe that that happened, like, not only that it happened, but that they remembered it. So not only did they yeah. believe that it happened, but they remembered it happening, even though it didn't. And Bugs Bunny isn't even a Disney creation. (laughs) That's like my favorite part of it. But um, she's like quite famous for uh, coming up with that. And her TED Talks are like really, um, or that TED Talk is like really influential in the study of memory. And she's made lots of books about memory and stuff like that. And she used to be like really, um, what's the word, like really heavily scrutinized. And people would just be like, no, there's no way that it's like that. Um, but even more recently than that, I think 2015, uh, a woman called Julia Shaw, who um, I think she has her own website now, but she mm. has basically made people believe that they committed a crime when they were younger, like that they committed a felony, that, oh, they, wow. that they had assaulted a person and had been questioned and brought in by the police and everything like that. And um, she did it over a course of just three interviews with each candidate, um, just bringing, using like emotive techniques. Like, yeah, your best friend, Phil, he told us um, you were with him that day and it was in his hometown. And yeah, the police called your mom and that's how uh, that's how we found out and stuff. And then they were like, yeah, I, I think it was 71% of um, the test subjects remembered committing a crime that never happened exactly yeah like how could they remember and it just goes back to like how subjective memory actually is yeah it's crazy um and in terms of the neurological underpinnings of memory there's actually been a lot of study done um especially considering like the i don't know the the huge incidence and prevalence now of memory altering diseases such as alzheimer's and dementia so Memory essentially doesn't have a specific location, but there is a memory center in the brain that is thought to be responsible for the ability to form memories. And it sort of goes through the process of forming them. And that's called the hippocampus. And uh, it's actually so named because it looks like a seahorse. Yes, Um, I learned this too. Yeah, yeah. Hippocampus is Latin for seahorse. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, so the process that the hippocampus provides is called long-term potentiation or LTP. And essentially what this does is, say, for instance, if you look at a picture of the Mona Lisa and you want to commit that to memory, what your hippocampus is actually responsible for doing is sort of running the circuit of electrical activity that occurred when you saw that picture over and over and over so much that when you're not even looking at it then, your brain can then go back to that sort of neural circuit of Mona Lisa neuronal firing and recreate it. And that's why if you have a very good visual memory, when you close your eyes and try and visualize that, you can actually do it because your brain has formed enough neurological circuits to allow that to fire even when it's not currently stimulating your brain. I find it harder to recall things when I have my eyes closed. Is that weird? Um, what sort of things? Any like Im- uh, visual things, images. Interesting. Yeah, if if because yeah. I was picturing the Mona Lisa there, and the most defining um, characteristic of that photo is the is she smiling or is she not smiling question. The wry smile. Yeah. Yeah. So in my head, I have a, a very clear image of what her lips look like, but if I close my eyes, it's so much harder to imagine. Interesting. Yeah. So. Come study yeah. me, science. Figure out yeah, what yeah. Um, so what current yeah. research has actually done in light of that is they've tried to create an artificial hippocampus for people who might have damaged their hippocampi, maybe via stroke or maybe from Alzheimer's or some maybe traumatic injury. So basically what they've basically developed is a silicone chip that they can nearly implant into the brain and provide electrode input in order to store memories in people. Now, that's the kind of end goal. It hasn't moved on, I don't think, to human participants yet. I think it's ongoing. They've done it in animals and mice where they've destroyed the hippocampus, thereby destroying the ability of that animal to form new memories. And then they've implanted this artificial device or, say, for instance, uh, a prosthesis, and they've found that actually the mouse now can uh, form new memories, which is absolutely incredible. Yeah. And sort of similar, like uh, to compare it to something else that maybe people are more aware of, you know, like those cochlear implants for people who are deaf. Yes. That's basically uh, a device that's inserted into the head that directly stimulates the auditory nerve. Um, so it bypasses the parts of the auditory system that are not functioning. And so it picks up uh, sound waves in the air and just transduces them and stimulates automatically the auditory nerve, bypassing the damaged brain circuits. So it would be sort of being uh, similar to that, albeit way more complex. Yeah, that's crazy, though. Yeah, it's super crazy. And it also kind of begs the question, like, will there be a a limitless capacity for memory then? Like, you know what I mean? Like a a terabyte chip now, for instance, would be a lot smaller than it was back 20 years ago. Yeah, Uh, And also, how will that affect the objectivity of memory if a computer is recording it, as opposed to kind of the endogenous uh, physiological hippocampus of the brain? You know what I mean? Will will these people be relied upon to a greater degree than those with a a regular or normal brain? Yeah, I think we might address that later on in the episode. Um, There was, did you watch uh, Black Mirror? No, I haven't seen that yet. You should watch it, it's really good. Um, One of the episodes, each episode is like an entirely different world with entirely different actors and characters and all of that stuff. Mm. Um, It's like The Outer Limits, except 
it's like digital world stuff where everyone has a phone. It's like the Twilight Zone. It's like the Twilight yeah. Phone. It should be called the Twilight Phone. <laughs> um, there's an episode of that where everybody has the ability to recall memories because they have like implants in their eyes or their brain or whatever. Um, and they record every single moment of their waking life and then um, they can recall it whenever using a little uh, like a touchpad thing that they have and it basically shows how like basically the impact of remembering everything um, like on you know social discourse pretty much like how it mm. how it would affect uh, intimate relationships and stuff like that and it yeah. is pretty interesting but it's i guess it's slightly different because it deals with objective memory and that's not really a thing that we can perceive of funnily yeah exactly which yeah. is so strange to think about um it's another like in like law enforcement and stuff like that like eyewitness testimony is one of the most reliable um or well one of the most crucial or critical points um between someone being innocent or someone being guilty um yeah and like just law enforcement and, and judges and like the population in general people who would be on the jury have no idea how inaccurate and wildly incorrect eyewitness testimony can be due to the fallibility of memory exactly um, i remember an anecdote that no it I think I heard this story on 99% Invisible. It's Roman Mars' podcast. It's really good. I can't remember where I heard it, and I know, oh, it's so ironic. You're doing a podcast about memory. <laughs> um, but it was this woman, and she was watching something on TV when a man broke into her house, and she, I, I think the man assumed that the house was empty, and when he saw her there, he was startled, so he attacked her. And she, like he had her pinned down, and they were face to face. So she got a good look at his face. Um, eventually, he escaped, and um, she reported it to the police. And then the police um, brought in some guys that were there, and they had a lineup. And the lineup consisted of five guys, one of whom was the actual guy who attacked her. And she didn't pick him; she picked someone else. And this gets way more fucked up than that. The guy that she picked and said did it was the guy that she was looking at on TV when he broke in, right? Oh, my God. But that's not the weirdest part. The weirdest part is that the guy on TV who she picked as the guy in the lineup was on TV giving a talk about the fallibility of memory and how unreliable oh eyewitness testimony is. And he was only at the police station to give a speech on how inaccurate memory is so that oh he could inform the police. And they were like, hey, get in the lineup, that'll be fun. And she was like, him, he did it. <laughs> That's ridiculous. But they had the actual guy who did it and she yeah. didn't pick him. Because yeah. she recognized him from the TV, and then in her memory, she implanted his head onto the head that was brutally holding her down against exactly. her will. Exactly. Like, in the stress of the situation and everything, her mind was muddled, and there yeah. was, like, kind of all these discrete different stimuli, and she just paired the wrong two, like, with... She paired his face with the attacker's body, so to speak. It's crazy, That's though. That's so and, and crazy. Like, you, you think about how often you do that on a daily basis. Like, just with things like I mentioned earlier, like the color of someone's T-shirt or the things that you were wearing yeah. that day. Um, it's such a minefield <laughs> when you consider how... Um, a, a friend of mine got... Uh, well, I guess... Um, me and two of my friends were coming out of a nightclub one night at, like, 
three in the morning and we were going to get McDonald's and we found out McDonald's was closed and um, this the, this other group of guys sort of um, like incited a fight or like they wanted to fight and mm. there was like some tension and stuff and one of them attacked uh, my other friend who if he's listening he knows who he is but he's the guy that every time I've been in an ambulance in my life it has been with him and it is more than one <laughs> so um and he's not a paramedic yeah exactly yeah um but yeah so uh anyway my mate got attacked and he was like he he had been like quite badly assaulted in the sense that he had to go to hospital he required surgery and the three of us gave a statement to the police about what happened and mm. the three of us gave three completely different statements like yeah it's crazy we all experienced the same thing like something mm -hmm. happened and we all recall it differently it's so strange exactly like and what's even mad to go back to sort of the testimony aspect of the eyewitness like oftentimes a court case will hinge upon that yeah. eyewitness and if they knew how unreliable that actually is they'd, they'd probably just throw it out of the courtroom and say that this doesn't add weight to the case either way yeah yet if that witness says oh no i saw him that almost guarantees guilt yeah. you know what i mean or guarantees a guilty verdict for the person who they they saw do the act or present at the time it's, it's absurd actually the amount of weight attributed to eyewitness testimony and i wonder like when that'll be kind of edited and updated and also is that sort of the uh, down to the fact that perhaps the law is, is is just kind of out of date or something or there's like legal precedents that are set in relation to that i don't know yeah there's a uh... A criminal justice reporter for the um, for Business Insider called Michelle Mark, who's been on my podcast twice. Mm. And the next time she comes on, I'm gonna ask her about that um, mm. because she has interviewed people who are on death row who, like, I mean, obviously they claim they're innocent, um, mm -hmm. but like the amount of them who are there because of like um, DNA evidence that's negligible at best, but also the amount who are there just because of eyewitness testimony and that being yeah. Like, you could just pay somebody to just go up there and say, like, without even having someone misremember something. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's such a minefield. And it's crazy that it's just the notion that if two people argue with one person, it can be about literally anything. That one person has no sense of objective truth because for all intents and purposes, they are wrong. Like, exactly yeah because yeah. they're in the minority in that sense so they're yeah. incorrect and that's the way that we view things and it seems so primitive but that's actually how the yeah. system works a lot of the time you know and in fact as in relation to something i'm going to mention later on our perceptual ability often rests on majority versus minority irrespective of, of objective evidence yeah. and that's something that's actually been examined quite like uh, thoroughly and it's it's very interesting uh in relation to social psychology and yeah uh, I, i'd like to, to bring that up later on yeah it's it's pretty crazy the amount of times that people like because when i learn about stuff like this and how mm -hmm. how negligible memory is um mm -hmm. i always think to myself yes i have noticed that in other people but i'm not like that <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah 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 the, so self-assured the amount of times that people have said something to me like 
Was it you I was talking to? Or, yeah, I went to see that movie. Was it you that went to see that with me? The amount of times people have done that. And yeah. because I'm a dickhead, I always just say yeah, no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> Probably wasn't me at all. I'd just say yeah. And just, yeah, I don't know, it, yeah. it interests me so much. Um, I, I notice it in myself with things like people's faces. Like, I, I don't really look at people's faces. I think for me it's like primarily... Um, a confidence issue more so than a memory issue mm, but if mm. i think that there might be one thing different um in a person from one day to the next not a person that i know very well but say someone in my office if, if i saw someone in my office outside of work there's no yeah. fucking way i'm saying hello to them because i will not <laughs> know for a fact that it is the person that i think it okay be. okay if, if i the the guy i sit next to i only i think i've been sitting next to him for two months and only today was I really confident of the fact that I would say hello to him outside of work if I saw him? <laughs> um, I, I reckon in my office there's about 2% of the people there that I'd, I'd say hello to outside the office, and the rest I'm just like, mm, couldn't be 100% sure that that's the person that I'm looking for. Um, yeah. I know I have a very good memory with other things. Like I remember, um, I remember dates and times that important things in my life happened or, or like even albums that I liked were released like I'm very good with stuff like that stuff that I've read I think most people are good with stuff that they've read though right because it goes yeah. easier or something yeah. like that I remember that being a thing in school like read it yeah, then yeah. say it out loud and then say it backwards into a Ouija board or whatever <laughs> but, uh, yeah 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 so <laughs> but I, I, and as well as that though I think it's important to remember that clearly like the, the reason we have memory at all is that it is very functional in that it works for the most part but just when we actually kind of try and tease out what works about it or how exact it is that's where like it just gets completely muddled because people have just this unbelievable overinflated view of how perfect their memory is which yeah. is just not backed up by evidence at all and in fact it's the complete opposite yeah it's we we don't like to think about it but basically we are the way we are because we have been constructed like humans are genetically programmed to mm -hmm. survive and keep the race alive and more so keep your inner circle alive not to search for the truth like that's mm -hmm. not what we do like naturally that's not what you know that's not what we evolved to do like yeah we're not about searching for the truth we're about exactly. surviving ultimately like so. the, the, yeah the, the truth doesn't matter essentially for survival all we need for survival are uh, food and fucking the two f's <laughs> <laughs> and that'll keep this the species going yeah yeah you got like when you when you look around a field for like a bear or something you're not going to know what height the grass was exactly or what kinds exactly. of flowers were there in that field like you don't recall things like that you don't really recall how many clouds are in the sky you basically just project whatever the most common thing you've seen is from yeah. the setting and you just project that into your brain for most of the times that you recall things that you've done and you're going to mix up the bear's face with the park ranger who you met 15 minutes yes. earlier when you try and identify him <laughs> in a lineup yeah because <laughs> the police are constantly bringing bears into the <laughs> tell us the bear that it was <laughs> uh, um, he swiped my picnic basket <laughs> <laughs> it's just this one bear with like ice cream all over his face <laughs> yeah that's the guy <laughs> 
exactly. So, yeah, basically, like, I, I don't know, could I bring it into a more, like, personal realm just to specifically say to people that all your memories are bullshit? Because I think that when people hear me and you talking about this on a real scientific level, they are just mm. going to think, yeah, that's what humans do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. not what I do. I, exactly. I think we need to make sure to differentiate between the fact that memory as a capacity of the human mind is extremely functional, but what makes memory interesting is how convinced people are of false memories. That's where, like, kind of, it just throws everything up in the air. It's like, kind of, when you can objectively show someone that their memory is wrong, yet they are 100% convinced it is right. That is what is just like the, the quandary of memory. Like that, That's what's crazy about memory is yeah. those instances. And they're ubiquitous amongst everyone and they're numerous. Um, have you ever heard of a movie called Shazam starring no. Sinbad, the comedian? Um, <laughs> okay, I never heard of it either, but... Lots of people have heard of it and can recall seeing it. And the most interesting thing about this movie is that it doesn't exist. And there are hundreds and hundreds and possibly thousands of people on the internet who can recall seeing this movie. Oh my and God. they can recall the cover art. And the most interesting thing about it is that this, um, this has been around for years, this notion that there was a movie called Shazam starring Sinbad, uh, where he, <laughs> he, he plays a genie in it. And oh my god! He's he's a dad. He has two kids, and basically his wife has died. And the kids are wishing that he would get another wife, a new wife, but he can't grant that wish because his pain for his uh, his dead wife is so strong. Anyway, oh my god. it's not a real movie. <laughs> yeah, when you actually said Shazam with Sinbad, my immediate thought was, is he talking about a genie movie? That's so wow! Weird. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't kind of make the the link to the kids or anything like that. But if you asked me, like, what do you think this movie is about? I one hundred percent would have said, "Is that like a genie movie?" Yeah. Yeah, but um, I, I think though that's an association with the word Shazam. Doesn't that generally go hand in hand with like genies and stuff? Perhaps, but actually, when you first said Shazam, I thought of that app where it identifies the song you're. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's to. right. Um, yeah. But the the whole discussion of the movie thing started, um, it, it kind of blew up on Reddit quite recently, um, mm. when loads of people realized, holy shit, this, this actually isn't real. Um, <laughs> and, and, like, they could all correlate details of the movie. Um, yeah. Which I found interesting, but also, I think confirmation bias would have played a huge part in that, where they're yeah. just like, yeah, that's right. And even if it's not right, the fact that there is a fake memory in their head already would imply to me that it is not too difficult to alter anyway. Exactly. Oh my God. I, I just thought of the best business venture ever. A film company should make a Shazam 2. Yes. Everybody would go watch it because like, oh yeah, I saw the original. I want to see how this story ends. That would be so good. <laughs> oh Did Sinbad God. and his new wife work it out? Or? Everyone's like so eager to fucking see. Yeah. Oh my god! Previously on Shazam. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. That's crazy. That would be so good. Yeah. But um, there was a, a journalist sort of um, scoured the internet, going back, I think, an arc. Well, not an archive, but basically scoured the internet for a post from the last seven years, and they all did seem to correlate different aspects of the movie, um, and it becomes somewhat 
less interesting when you find out that there was a movie called Kazam with Shaq in it. Um, And he did play some kind of wizardish character, but it wasn't a hit. It wasn't a very popular movie. And Shaq is not Sinbad. So (laughs) I like, I mean, they're not even the same kind of black and they're not even the same height and they have different. So I don't think it's one of those like, Oh, was that Samuel L. Jackson or was that Eddie Murphy? Yeah, the misassociations. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's one of those. I, I genuinely think that something has gotten that. Have you ever heard of the Mandela effect? No, it's it's not something you would have learned in uh, in psychology, but um, it, it's this notion that um, it, it comes from I think Comic Con a few years ago. There was some woman, um, I, I don't know who she is. I don't know was she like I think she was like a famous cosplayer or a YouTuber or something like that. Mm. And she was in this um, like private room with a bunch of her fans, and she was reading a book or something, and she realized that pretty much everybody in the room or the majority of people in the room at the time had the notion that Nelson Mandela died when he was in prison and like they all believed it like but not not just that he was already dead because like that wasn't too far-fetched at the time when he was an old man and rumors of his death were constantly surfacing online and stuff yeah yeah it was just a few years ago but they thought that he died in prison and they all had like this knowledge of that happening like this inserted memory of that happening so weird um, yeah the mandela effect itself has tragically evolved to be a sort of a conspiracy theory not a conspiracy theory but uh an idea that maybe um somewhere like we've crossed over with the parallel universe and some people have memories of something that happened in another universe which is very romantic and i would love to entertain it but sadly i don't Mm. really think it has any basis in current science okay um but yeah, that whole thing. And there was another thing about the Bernstein Bears, which I'd never heard of. I don't think they were anything in Ireland, but they were huge in America. And people were like, oh yeah, the Bernstein Bears, it's like Bern and then S-T-E-I-N. But it's actually Bernstein. And everyone like sort of recently found this out and everyone is losing their fucking minds over it. Like no one okay. can believe that that's actually what it was the whole time. So oh, um, wow. that's the Mandela effect, which is sort of like without the whole parallel universe bullshit. It's basically a sort of a collective misremembering of a cultural thing. Yeah, wow. Is also interesting and also happens. Like it's. Yeah. I, I wonder how many people could perfectly recreate the coca-cola logo like how many people know that there's a dash in the middle yeah yeah so true i don't know if there is a dash in the middle and that actually goes back to some very interesting cognitive uh dichotomy between recognition and recall human beings are extremely good at recognizing things and present them with like the Coca-Cola logo, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, that's the Coca-Cola logo. But if you ask them to recall it and spell it, slash, kind of type, write it out, or describe sort of the unique characteristics of it, we're terrible. Yeah. Recall is fundamentally more neurologically taxing than recognition, which is far easier. It's it's sort of why when you're studying, for instance, if you have the book open and you're reading, it's like, oh, my God, yeah, I totally know it. And you're reading over, it's like, oh, I really understand it. But the second you close the book, and try to recall that from memory it's like shit i actually don't really know it at all it's even if you like i am quite a scatterbrained person in the sense that like all of my desks are covered with shit and like it's tidy (laughs) but like if you look behind the tv there's a bunch of shit there Um, yeah and i know what that stuff is right like 
I know that there's some... It's or, yeah, it's, it's organized chaos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But inside the organized chaos, right, I know that there's books, and I know that there's some change, and I know that I have two old wallets in there, right? <laughs> now, that's just something I'm recalling. If I were to actually look, there's no way I could tell you what books they are. I, there's five. I could probably name two, and there's no way I could tell you specifically how much change is there. Like, I don't know how many... I don't roughly know how many 20s or 10s there are. And that's mm. not, like, that's not an inability to count things from a distance. That's just the fact that the only thing I can recall is that one time I dropped some change down there. So, like, if you <laughs> think that when you scan a room that your memory of that room is perfect, it's not. Because if it were, you would be able to know specifically how much money is on your desk. Because exactly. you'd be able to zoom in on that point and go, yeah, there's two 20s, there's three 10s, and then there's two 5s, so that's how much I have. You don't know that. You're just like, there's some change. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. Very bad analogy, but I got there in the end. <laughs> no, yeah, totally. And the, the way psychologists actually describe that is is that so attention or when you pay attention to things, that's like the glue that holds your perceptual capacity together. And what's very kind of apparent from research into attention is that attention is actually very finite. It's very limited. Yes. We don't we can't apply attention uh, kind of universally throughout our perceptual experience. And that's why things like road traffic accidents increase exponentially when people are on the phone. They're still looking at the road like the, they don't have the phone in front of their eyes for the most part, but it's beside their ear. But they still can't see as well when they're talking on the phone. Um, and it, it's just very, very interesting that attention is just such a finite resource. Yeah, that's I, I fucking hate the the stereotype that women are really good at multitasking, but men aren't. Shut the fuck yeah. up. Nobody is good at multitasking. Literally, exactly. nobody on the planet can multitask. It is not a thing that humans are capable exactly. of doing. <laughs> and it should be, it, it's a misnomer. It should be multi-half-tasking, because that just means, like, none of the jobs get done, but I've started loads of them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. even, like, being on the phone and also talking to someone else at the same time, like mm. that has to be the most frustrating thing ever when you're in a, when you're actually on the phone and someone is saying stuff to you usually trying to help you with the thing that you're on the phone about and you're like would you fuck off i can only do one of these things yeah exactly exactly yeah, it's just we're not we're not built to do stuff like that sadly yeah. we think that we can or in this exactly. instance we think that women are really good at it and we're bad at it like no guys don't yeah. beat yourself up about this yeah, <laughs> this isn't yeah, a thing yeah. that anybody is able to do so yeah um yeah. so would will we move on from memory for the time being and yeah talk yeah. about how your news is filtered to you um mm -hmm. because i think this is a obviously it's a pressing topic um but it's also really interesting because with the advent of algorithms and uh like basically like capitalism and all of these companies sending sponsored links your way um, and Facebook filtering news based on the things that you already like and the fact that the cookies follow you around the internet. Um, so this creates what's called the ideological bubble. Um, but before we go into that, I guess, do you want to talk about how your news is filtered to you? Because I know the types of stories that I get, like even if I just go onto YouTube, I have like about 50 videos of Bill Burr like it's like Bill Burr destroys this or Bill Burr yeah. on social justice wars or whatever and like yeah. I don't even like them but I have to click them every time I see them because I have to know what he's saying like, yeah, I don't, like yeah. I, I've said on this podcast previously that I don't like Bill Burr and that's not true I do really like Bill Burr I think he's really yeah. funny 
but I find it really difficult to constantly listen to him being like, yeah, well, you know, you got you got these guys over here saying, you know, that this thing is happening, and it's not even fucking happening. And it's like, yeah. I just, I, I always know what his thing that he's going to say is. And, and how he's going to say it. Yeah, and so I have to click on it just so that i know that i'm right <laughs> so um that's my youtube and i also have like i have loads of like oasis stuff from 95 coming in there like some wrestling podcast clips and things like that um and then i go on facebook and it's like just constant fake news and my idiot friends commenting on fake news stories or like <laughs> a fucking thing that went viral in 2004 saying that the Friends movie is finally happening <laughs> and my friend being like oh look and all you have to do is click the link and the fucking date is right there yeah, but, yeah oh yeah. man um so yeah that's pretty much what happens on Facebook and then i have like the odd um sponsored post which is like because I do a lot of research on stuff for both for this podcast and not for this podcast, I get the odd mental thing that I have no idea how it arrived there. Like either um, Asian t-shirt specialists in Dublin or else bisexual singles in Dublin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. These are the things that sort of come up from time to time. Well, I know how the second one came up. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. No, it's really weird. Or like just being shown these weird sort of trending videos that are just completely bizarre and they don't even seem to be trending. So it's just like, why the hell are you showing me this? Exactly. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's the way that dormant stories and I say dormant because they can actually come back to life and trend again in yeah, the year yeah. where they're no longer relevant. Like I remember seeing the one about Kim Jong-un fucking firing his uncle out of a cannon because he disagreed with him or whatever and yeah, everyone's like yeah. wow lol at North Korea but that never happened yeah <laughs> stop yeah. this but even like you know even good well so called good media agencies have fallen into that trap of posting unsubstantiated claims about North Korea because it's so easy to do or crazy stories about things that they do in Russia like yeah look at this guy drive a bottle of vodka down the wrong side of the motorway lol at Russians but yeah. like you know it's it it's really weird and we're sort of moving in a strange direction where each individual who has news filtered to them and who chooses to consume only that news, they're creating a bubble around themselves for the exactly. way that they see the world. So, like, there are people who make blanket statements like, Russians are crazy. Have you not seen that one guy who jumps off the buildings? And it's like, yeah, yeah. yeah in a population of millions of people, that is definitely proof that they are all fucking crazy. Exactly. And I think another kind of factor in that is that we need to recognize that people want to be proven right we have this burning desire to look for evidence that confirms what we already believe yeah absolutely like we, we don't want to be proven wrong and i think like twitter is the perfect example or the showcase of that in that people will like particular people and then they'll just see posts by those particular people who confirm what they're saying and it, it just kind of snowballs, and, and and you're basically just surrounded by people who agree with you. Yeah, uh, and, and it's and not even so so much that we're just kind of interested in these people and what they have to say, but it's that we really, really don't want to hear opposing viewpoints. We're addicted to the idea of the thing that they're saying or the world that they are helping exactly. us to, to form. Another thing that they do, aside from only following and liking the ones that they 
um, that conform to their worldview is the retweeting of the most outrageous claims from the opposing side. And yeah. so you see this a lot with the Donald Trump thing. Um, and I don't want to, I don't want to talk about him too much because I have absolutely like just burned that subject to death. But <laughs> you know, someone who doesn't like Donald Trump retweeting a neo-Nazi supporting Donald Trump does not confirm that all Trump supporters are members of the exactly. KKK. And that's something that, like, I will full-on admit that I have been guilty of. Now, I have never had a view as extreme as that. I, I know that yeah. reasonable people have supported Donald Trump. But I've definitely been guilty of thinking of them as them, if you know what I mean. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. A- another bracket through which I don't ever need to associate myself with because I'm above that. Or... I see the world in a better way than they do, or like I'm, you know what I mean? Like I'm superior yeah. in some way. Like it's in-group, out-group politics, and it's kind of it, it seems to be a fundamental facet of nearly every human's uh, appraisal of the world. Yeah, and it's so prevalent and just so persistent in the way that it's infected the world. Like everybody yeah. is like that now. it did not used to be like this I know I I don't know what happened I think what's happened is that people just don't want to think about things as thorough anymore so as soon as they hear oh you're a Trump supporter now I know everything about you they don't want to have to be like okay well maybe you're just against the Obamacare because you're a middle class American who's paying through the nose for health insurance that they don't need can't afford and is crippling them financially and so Trump to you is your only way out of this like financial crisis yeah and 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 that's what people don't want to talk about or uh, yeah we crave two things in this era and that is a narrative and also just simplicity within that Mm. narrative like nobody really wants to talk about syria other than to say like war is bad or whatever yeah like nobody even understands the syrian conflict like i know that i don't and i try to think of why that is and it's really that i haven't had it simplified for me like i do understand a lot about it through um some documentaries that i've watched about going back to the 80s even the 70s with america's presence in the middle east and stuff like that and i understand that um it's um it's a place that's been uh like consistently destabilized um, mm. over the course of like our sort of modern history um but mm-hmm. i don't I, like there's no palpable villainy there that you can just look at and go oh yeah that's it we need to get that guy out and i think that was a huge problem with the war on terror too was this notion that well once saddam hussein is hanging off those rafters then that's it that's democracy is brought in there we don't yeah yeah it's like the idea that if you can kill the one guy in charge of the thing that you therefore killed the thing it's 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 movie logic like it's you know it's yeah i know exactly and when you think about it a movie takes roughly 90 minutes to reach its conclusion whereas real life change cannot nor ever happen that quickly yeah yeah you but, can't impose democracy on people who are like not used to that at all and expect them to adopt it. Yeah. You know, and and that's what happened in Iraq is that we went there with possibly like some would say terrible intentions, like kind of ulterior motives, but some would say okay, well, hopefully after Saddam was toppled, we could have, you know, I mean, set up a sort of a republic in Iraq, a democratic republic and they could maybe look after themselves in a much more benevolent way, but it just couldn't happen extremists were like lol 
Yeah, Don't exactly. Think so. um, exactly. But yeah, this um, the notion or the concept of the ideological bubble is currently like it's it's pressing news right now because with Trump's victory and even before that with Brexit, like the um, the Leave campaign's victory, people are suddenly asking questions as to why. Mm. Now a lot of people are saying because racism, but there are mm. people who are getting really introspective about it and uh, I would say I'm one of them like I'm very surprised but also um, I really want to know why and I'm really interested in the fact that I um, am now fully aware that I was completely living in a bubble that whole time and it's so it's fascinating to me like it's terrifying in one way but also I'm I'm relieved that I can look at it and know that that is what happened like exactly that's the actual thing like I was definitely I was naive and sort of stubborn, I guess. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also just, um, yeah, experiencing heavy confirmation bias with every retweet and every like, you know, yeah. every link that I clicked and stuff. But that is the way that news is filtered to people. And the concept of an objective reality was always something really far from uh, the capacity of the human brain. But in this digital era, I think it's way more difficult to pin down what's right and what's wrong because of what you were saying about people um, on Twitter only following the things that, that they like and people just wanting the satisfaction of finding out that they're right. You can exactly. have any agenda and if you go somewhere online, you will find evidence of that agenda. Exactly. And it doesn't exactly. even have to be sufficient to become objective truth. If, if it's sufficient to you, that's enough. Like Exactly. How many times have you had a conversation with someone who's like, uh, fucking homeless people, go and get a job. Or, or else, I have a job, I don't get my money from begging. You know they make loads of money from doing that? And stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Like, anyone who believes that can go online and there, I bet you there's forums about it. Yeah. About how, look, proof that this homeless guy scammed money because he's not really homeless. And then, therefore, you will plant that image of that one person onto every homeless person you see. And you'll be like, you know what they do, don't you? They take that money and then they go and bring it home to their family. They make 300 euro a day doing this. I'm paying taxes and this, like, that's the, you know, it's that fiery passion that people have. Like, I don't know. I I really do think there's something in it about um, people getting really angry at other people not doing the same amount of work as they're doing or something like that. Yeah. And we never look beyond the point that's proven as right you know what i mean yeah like that's all we need to find and in fact if the beginning of a particular article disproves us we'll sort of just skim through that and then as soon as we find what proves is right it's like okay well there's the like the the main point of this article there and they, don't, they probably don't even read past that you know what i mean or or else they open the article scroll straight to the comment section find the one comment that agrees with their point of view and exactly. be like yeah knew it yeah 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 <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's really bizarre, but it, it's terrible. Like I, I think the media, um, especially the mainstream media, has been hit terribly uh, quite recently, and especially during the American election. Like uh, I, I can't think of a mainstream media outlet now that I'd be like, oh no, well, like I, I definitely trust this, or I know these guys don't make up any bullshit or push their narrative or try and hide their agenda. You know what I mean? Like it's, I, I think it just became so apparent during that what the narrative was yeah yeah i think everybody just needs to be much more aware of that and 
I, I, I see another side to it too, though, of journalism and like mainstream media corporations attempting to stay relevant in this era um, is becoming increasingly difficult for them because obviously the competition is out there. Like they can lose their job to somebody who just uploads vlogs on YouTube. You know what I mean? Like they mm. can lose their spotlight to some random guy who's charismatic enough to court viewership. Um, but with that comes the quest for the best headlines and the best stories and stuff like that. And I don't think too many of the, and I will probably get in trouble for saying this, but I don't think too many of the main, um, like mainstream media outlets have an ethos that is prevalent in every single thing that they write. I think it's down to the writer a lot of the times, particularly with the online publications. Not so much the tabloids, because they do have an agenda. Like, it's very obvious where they stand on things most of the time, like newspapers and stuff like that. But online publications and stuff, I really think it's down to the writer. Like, I, I, It still has to be kind of uh, filtered through the editor, though, right? It does, yeah. But I think... Uh, I don't know. I'd like to think that most editors would think about the clicks rather than the... Like, I think that that's sort of what drives it. I think it's mostly, like, it's capitalism, you know? I completely agree. But then when you think about it, if a writer is thinking about the editor thinking about the clicks, yes. then they're going to create something that their editor will like because it'll generate clicks, yeah, if that yeah. makes sense. That's true. But yeah. I also think that those, th I, I think that that right there is the exact agenda that the right is looking to push with the whole anti-political correctness stance is like, well, if this, if this uh, outlet is racist, then, you know, market forces will automatically correct that. But then, like, if, if you're relying on that as your parameters for what's acceptable and what isn't, then how is this any different? You know what I mean? Like, th this is just people writing for... It's it's ultimately driven by capitalism in that sense. Like, that's how I feel about it. I don't know. I, I guess, like, my view of political correctness is that it, it stifles free speech and it sort of muddies the waters in relation to talking about things openly and honestly. And I just find it extremely ironic that it seems to be the right that are pushing against an open and honest discussion of, of world events. And you know what I mean? I just think that it's really weird. Like it's almost like it's a flip. It it used to be sort of that you'd see, oh, that the right wing, the Fox News has its agenda and they're pushing that no matter what. But recently, it's it's just becoming more and more apparent that the, that the left and liberal media has such a a narrative that they're trying to push and find. Uh, it's just very hard to find contrasting viewpoints within the network of their own media organization. Yeah, I I think the right. I think currently. The left is very close to, like, a kind of a civil war in the... Yeah, yeah, it's, I, like, imploding. Yeah, yeah, the, there's people who are doubling down on the the Trump hate, and then there are the half that are being introspective and questioning about it. But I think the right is going to have a very similar civil war in, like, two years or so, because the right is united now, but the things that have gotten Trump elected are a combination of different segments of the right that do not necessarily cor correspond with one another. Like, mm. there are, like, the average Donald Trump supporter who, in all honesty, probably doesn't really care about, like, races. Like, they're not driven by this innate 
racism within them or anything like that. And then there's like the Trump guys who are absolutely racist. And mm. like there are the ones like Trump is the only uh, presidential candidate ever backed by the like fucking KKK or whatever. I know the yeah. KKK are in a significant organization in, in a global sense, but the guys like David Duke, like he does hold some kind of sway. And it is interesting that Donald Trump surrounds himself with Jews. <laughs> like, yeah, he, yeah. he like Donald Trump loves Jews like he actually does. And well, he they, loves rich people and maybe those are more likely to be Jews. Yeah, well, maybe, but like, yeah. how how does David Duke like exactly? Yeah, allow yeah. how does he make allowance for that? Yeah, but, yeah, it's yeah. A, but I, I think I, I think that's just one example of how the right is kind of gonna. Not that I'm saying a significant portion of the right are driven by racism, but like that's just one difference in Trump supporters that is like that's a flammable difference. I think. Yeah, so, yeah. Um. I just think it's really interesting that there's like a, a polar opposite kind of political dichotomy because like surely there are good points about the Republicans, good points about the Democrats, and that you need to take each thing on its merit. Like I, it, it just doesn't compute with me why people would just go with X because they're political party A as opposed to Y who's political party B. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like kind of uh, why can't you take things on their own merit? Like people just don't want to think anymore. They just want to take cognitive shortcuts and yeah, be spoon fed. Nobody wants to be like nobody wants to say I fucking hate guns and I'm fully against guns, but you know what? It makes me uncomfortable that the fetus feels pain during the abortion. Like nobody mm. can actually say that. Yeah. Like it's like it's just for some reason somewhere this tribal divide was created and it was like all right look you guys get the guns but yeah. you can hate abortion so like it's yeah, so yeah. weird like here's a collection of things that have nothing to do with one another exactly. but we will defend these things and this is how we will identify the members of our tribe and, <laughs> and that tribe thinks that it's sort of oh my god if you're against abortion you are a religious bigot and that's it you can't be thinking about things from a humanistic or rational perspective that doesn't exist you can't possibly conceive of the unborn as having inalienable human rights um no that's not a possibility you're a religious bigot if you're against abortion uh her body her choice done deal mantra over you're wrong yeah it's and, just and then on the other side it's like if you have a problem with me carrying my AR-15 down the street openly in my <laughs> arms, then yeah, yeah. you just want Obama to take all our guns. Yeah, yeah. Haven't you read our constitution? Oh, fuck off. Yeah, it's just bizarre. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, Big time. Yeah, so the ideological bubble is just very, very strong at this point in time. But I think it's important to remember that the people who were interviewed at Trump rallies saying stuff like, yeah, Obama's a Muslim. Everyone knows that. I read it on the internet. And I'm not saying that that's representative of every Trump supporter. Again, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that this is a number of people who read a fake story online. And because it fit their agenda, they chose to believe it. And I chose to use the Trump supporters because I think most of the people listening will have seen that video. So um, just that's an example of an ideological bubble that was created. And exactly. Yeah. Fake news helped to expand it. And to completely shut people off from reality. And, like, that's a significant thing in yeah. the world. Um, do you have anything more to say about that? Yeah, I think so. So, 
kind of what we're talking about the ideological bubble and how when our attitudes and stuff aren't questioned we kind of find that comforting and we just look for things that sort of confirm our current viewpoint and views of the world and there's interesting kind of a couple of interesting psychology studies that were done um a a psychologist called ash in 1952 did this really interesting experiment so basically he showed a group of people this two lines and one line was objectively longer than the other but what he found was if there was like one kind of confidant in that group who was in on the experiment and he just vehemently opposed the fact that the one that is longer and said that it was actually the objectively smaller one was longer he found that people would slowly turn to his side and just because he could vehemently and vigorously and fervently affirm that that people actually change their minds regardless of the fact they're literally looking at two lines with one objectively longer and they started to admit to themselves that yeah you're right the shorter one is actually longer than the longer one absolutely bizarre like in relation to social influence and just how kind of gullible people are especially when we're near someone who's fervently advocating their position yeah that's super strange and it wasn't even as if it was a complex task it was two lines and the group task was decide amongst yourselves which one of these is longer and obviously there was the kind of the one in on the experiment influencing the entire group and it only took one in many instances that's so crazy. So weird. Yeah. And then also sort of uh, another study that was done by Stanley Milgram. So essentially after World War Two, there was kind of a lot of confusion amongst the public as to why would the Germans do this? Is there something innately evil about Germans, Nazism, etc.? So what Stanley Milgram in the United States decided to do was to find out if there was something unique to Germans or could Americans also be encouraged to do evil tasks just by following authority figures. And it turned so out he... that they couldn't, and only Germans are evil. <laughs> the end. <laughs> Don't spoil my story. <laughs> so what he did was he basically advertised in a paper that he was kind of uh, carrying out research in this memory task, and that he wanted participants to come over and to help the researchers out in the memory task. And the way the experiment was run was as follows. The participants would go into a room, and they'd sit down in a chair, and they'd have a microphone, and they'd be talking to for all they knew, another participant in another room. And they'd ask this participant a question, and then they'd give them the answer. And then later on, they'd ask them again and see if the participant remembered. And if they remembered, then nothing happened. They'd move on to the next question. But if they got it wrong, the participant had to shock them. So sort of a punishment. And they were trying to say that, okay, well, the more you punish them, the faster they'll learn or the more they'll learn. So anyway, there were like dials going from like 10 volts up to I think something like 480 volts or something crazy and actually the there was a logo above this dial that actually had like a skull and crossbones <laughs> highlighting that like it, it, it was a lethal dose of electricity and it, as they were moving up through the voltage the participant who was actually in on the experiment would start screaming as in they're feeling a lot of pain and then the actual participant would turn to the research like should i continue and the Research like, yes, we need you to continue. And just being told that and not kind of forcefully coerced, they would increase the dose. And then slowly and slowly, the the other kind of participant would scream more and more as if they were being electrocuted when they weren't. But the actual participant didn't know that. They thought they, they were actually electrocuting them. But then eventually, after they went up far enough, there was silence after they electrocuted them, insinuating that they'd actually killed them. 
And the participants were actually encouraged and carried out further electrocution on a purported participant who wasn't even responding to the questions anymore. Um, Do you know the best thing (laughs) about that experiment? What's that? They never told the participants, like, that they were in an experiment. So a lot of them think that they're murderers. (laughs) But where'd you hear that? I heard it on another podcast. I don't know if it's true or not. I don't think, well, I don't know. From when I was, when I was learning it, I, I heard they were debriefed and a lot of them required counseling after. Yeah, 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 that's right. But, may, but maybe some of them <laughs> no, like yeah, left or... I, I think the ones that like didn't, um, that didn't actually like, you know, seriously hurt a person. I don't think they were debriefed or anything. I think they were just okay, like, right, yeah. Can go, yeah. Yeah, because some people, some, in fairness, some people did walk <clears throat> out, but it was actually a, a minority of people. Yeah. The vast majority followed through with the electrocutions. Like it's, <laughs> and, and Stanley Milgram took that to mean that, okay, there's nothing innately evil about the Germans. We're all capable of evil. Which is incorrect, obviously. <laughs> God bless America. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Home of the free and the brave. Fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where's my guns and beer? <laughs> yeah. And my Bible. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's... But, but God only gave us two hands, you know. Uh, just one for beer, one for guns. The Bible can sit in my cupboard at home. No, the Bible should be constantly resting on top of your face so that you can read it. So that you have no <laughs> choice but to read it. And you can't see where you're shooting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's actually a pretty good metaphor for America, especially the Bible Belt areas. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to copyright that after this podcast. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a really good cartoon of like an American with like beer in one hand, a gun in the other, and a fucking Bible over his eyes, just like trying to aim, and there's like people in the way? I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking too much. <laughs> but then, like, after that point, like, a guy enters the frame and he's like, This is how Obama doesn't want you to live your life. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. exactly. Obama says that this is wrong. (laughs) Yeah, or Obummer, or whoever. Like, they have all these weird nicknames for Obama. Yeah. Abomination. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So weird. So weird. I I follow um, Associated Press on Twitter because Mm. um, they're mostly... um, like, I mean, every single outlet, I think, in the world has an agenda of some description, but I think AP's agenda is not one fixed ideology that they're, mm. you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but pretty much every single thing that they tweet will see at least nine people in the replies blaming Obama for it, no matter <laughs> what it is. And it is yeah. mind-blowing to me how, yeah. like angry or just how passionately these people hate obama and insist that everything is his fault it's unbelievable like it's he's become the scapegoat to end all scapegoats you mean the escape goat (laughs) that's the thing that people on the internet think is a real thing by the way um so yeah um people will do fucked up shit like they will. with very little uh encouragement yeah which is kind of do you want to talk about the other experiment relating to that or do you want to yeah yeah I, I guess so um 
I don't know if uh, many of you have heard of the Zimbardo Stanford prison experiment. Basically, this guy, a uh, psychologist again, they're all crazy, Zimbardo, he devised this kind of prison experiment where he pulled these participants in and then randomly split them 50-50, let them know that they're being randomly split 50-50 and accord prisoner status to one half and prison guard status to the other half and then kind of let the prison guards run the prison and treat the prisoners as they feel they should be treated and I guess follow the prison etiquette as much as they can. Uh, I think they devised a list of rules that shouldn't be broken, just curfew and had to enforce mealtimes, etc. But from what I remember, the actual prison experiment had to be cancelled early because the prisoners sort of lost the, sorry, the prison guards lost the run run of themselves and a few of them started like physically beating and harassing and almost torturing some of the prisoners. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, even though the roles were arbitrary, like they adopted them vehemently and sort of morphed into the people that they were ascribed. Yeah. Um, I have read some criticisms about the Stanford prison experiment I can't really recall them all perfectly, but I remember one of the things being that uh, Zimbardo himself actively participated in the experiment um, okay. as the superintendent, which sort of would... Um, it's not really good for him to be doing that. Like Yeah, exactly. It's uh, a huge confounding bias. Yeah, yeah. And, and also just that most of the guards didn't actually exhibit any cruel or unusual behaviour. Mm, like most okay, of them yeah. were actually fine and they were friendly and they you know understood that they were surrounded <laughs> by their colleagues and stuff so. yeah. i'm gonna see you monday in math class. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> why are you doing this to shut you? up and vomit into the bucket <laughs> yeah, yeah and then drink it up yeah squeal piggy <laughs> <laughs> yeah that would be so awkward going back into class <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah seriously oh, but um gosh. yeah and it, that for anyone who wants to kind of that was uh translated into a movie there a few years ago is it called the prison um or with adrian brody something I like that i think it's called the experiment oh right no yeah you're dead right yeah the experiment yeah i've never seen it but um adrian brody is actually fantastic I... he is and forrest whitaker's in it as well and he's also fantastic he is yeah i really like him he does lots of running in, in all his movies yeah yeah and I love the way he always winks at people when he meets them. It's very endearing. Yeah. <laughs> Even when there's no one else there, you can see him practicing his wink. Yeah. <laughs> ah, that's terrible. <laughs> I know, yeah. An eye for an eye, as they say. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, dear. And I, Poor for fact. one, am going to change the subject. Um, well, not change, but uh, to move into just the next uh, sort of uh, subtopic. This one is really quick because I don't really have a lot of uh, details about it. There's a Wikipedia page if anyone wants to have a look. It's called The Censorship of Images in the Soviet Union. And basically, we all know what the Soviet Union is. It is a country. No, just kidding. Um, so the Soviet Union um, obviously existed for a long time, and they were a heavy communist uh, country um, sort of famously run into the ground by Stalin um, but they had like um, state censorship and state sponsored media and the state were in charge of 
every piece of media that the population of the country uh, or the state would uh, would read. So if there was a story published with some pictures of um, some politicians in the cabinet and one of them later defected, he was removed from the picture. And this is in a pre-Photoshop era. Like you're going back to as early as the 20s here um, with this happening. And this happened over the course of about 60 years. Um, and if, if anyone had proved to be a traitor or whatever, they would just be removed from the images forever. So if you went to an archive and looked up an image that you were looking for, it could be a completely different one to the one that existed originally. Um, so it's like in the book 1984 when uh, Winston has to basically rewrite history for a living. And they did it with lots of things like when people protested against the communist state, the Soviet Union would... <laughs> and this is so clever they would just change the placards that the people were holding up to be like in favor of communism or anti-fascism or whatever so yeah. um they completely doctored everything up to um the russian space program which i i don't know how many of you know a lot about the russian space program or the soviet space program but in um the Soviet Union, they weren't called astronauts. They were called cosmonauts, which is just so much cooler. It's, like, infinitely cooler. Um, yeah. But their space program consisted of putting people into rockets and firing them into the sky. Um, and that's literally... They didn't really care about safety. They didn't care about return. All they cared about was getting people into space, and that's pretty much it. Um, but there was a guy called Valentin Bondarenko who died in a training accident, and when they published the picture of um like their cosmonauts he was no longer one of them so mm. they did this with lots of uh of cosmonauts who got lost or died uh, they just altered the photo so that they never existed and therefore they um you know shed any responsibility that they had in their deaths yeah and it, it like people don't know how many cosmonauts died because they're you know the figures are suspect at best yeah so yeah. um for all intents and purposes, those people didn't exist. And the objective truth is the one that the Soviets were projecting with the editing of these pictures and stuff. So that no like, one could yeah. even say otherwise, you know. Like literally written out of history. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Absolutely Yeah, crazy. it is crazy, yeah. Um, but that's another thing that's happened in real life. And that's a way that your memory of something can be altered and how people can use the fallibility of memory against you. Um, yeah. And I think that that's something to be like afraid of and to be wary of. Of course, in the online era, that would be a lot more difficult to do. But you look at a country like North Korea or even China, where the Internet is available in China, but a lot of the websites that you would like to use aren't. And they're replaced instead by state-owned you know, yeah. copies where um, there's heavy censorship and there's heavy uh, moderation and stuff like that. So... Uh, yeah. moderating is moderation used in that context also to mean i guess the moderating of a thing is that moderation yeah 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 um and i yeah. also think as well it's important to bear in mind that I, it, to some degree uh doctoring i think still occurs especially in the likes of say videos that the certain mainstream media are showing and they actually leave out certain segments of it to try and form a different sort of idea behind the video i think cnn were found to be guilty of that and they actually had to retract it and issue an apology um i think i can't think of the exact instance but if you google cnn video doctoring retraction apology you, you should pull it up uh it was, it was 
They, they, they basically doctored a video to, and it, it gave a completely different idea of the content of it in much the same way as what you were talking about, like the marches against communism yeah. or Soviet Russia, where they just would change the placard. So it looks like the people are like passionately marching for it. I um, yeah. I think I read somewhere that when the when NATO bombed Gaddafi's Libya in 2010, mm. I think, or 2011, um, there was a huge protest going on in London, uh, in like Trafalgar Square or somewhere at the time, and mm-hmm. it was like 5,000 students strong in the centre oh, of London protesting uh, the rise of student fees in the country. And after NATO dropped the bombs on Gaddafi, I'm pretty sure that Gaddafi told the population that these were the people in London protesting against the treatment of Libya. Oh, wow, yeah. But I heard that on Sky News, and therefore I don't know that I necessarily believe that that's what happened. Yeah, yeah. There's a very sketchy past between Gaddafi and the likes of Tony Blair and George Bush and stuff, Mm, where they mm. were clearly colluding at, like, several different points in the past so it's yeah yeah um but yeah there was another one where obama and the egyptian president or prime minister i'm not sure uh, who the like figurehead in egyptian politics is but they were um as part of like a trio they were walking to some conference i think it was a un one and it was like the it was obama the egyptian guy and some other guy and the Egyptian media altered the picture so that it was the Egyptian guy who was heading the group. Mm, like, he was in front mm. and Obama was behind, but in reality, Obama was in front. And okay. Yeah, it was one of the one of the many images that was circulated during the Arab Spring and the um, the protests in Egypt back in like, yeah, 2012 yeah. or whenever it was. Um, so, yeah, like, it, it happens still, like, you're right. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. And if we lived in a country where our internet access was as restricted as it is in some countries, mm-hmm. you would not really be able to properly conceive of what is objective truth. Like, it totally. would be within your grasp. So, um, you know, that's something to be wary of. Um, Big time. Do you want to talk about Google and how it affects our memory? Yeah, sure. Uh, um, so yeah, I actually have a, I have a very interesting piece of research that I'll kind of begin by talking about and then sort of allude to how this could actually be uh, kind of reason to think that Google is in fact affecting our ability to remember. So I saw a really interesting documentary actually a few years ago on BBC Horizons who do some really, really good yeah, interesting scientific do. documentaries. And basically they took this guy and they gave him, it was like kind of a belt around his chest. And this belt would vibrate in relation to which direction he was facing, north, south, east and west. So it would vibrate differently. With, so with his eyes closed, for instance, he would be able to walk due north basically uh, forever. If there was nothing in his way, he would know exactly which way due north is or south or east or west or anything. So he kept this kind of belt on, wrapped around his chest for a a number of days, if not weeks, and he found then that his brain almost incorporated this sense of direction into into itself in a similar way that it incorporates visual perception, auditory perception. It now had a direction perception that it sort of relied on. And in fact, after he stopped wearing the belt, he said it almost felt like he was after losing a sense in that as if he'd become blind or become deaf or become 
you know what I mean? He couldn't feel or something like that. He, he really felt like he'd lost out on a perceptual capacity. So it was as if his brain had incorporated into uh, incorporated this new sense into its kind of uh, perceptual arsenal. So I think when we consider that and the fact that our brain is really good at adapting to new environments yeah. and incorporating new avenues of perceiving the world, if we think about how easy it is to Google anything, how we really don't have to remember that much anymore, if you take kind of exams out of the question, but just in day-to-day living, kind of the vast majority of us in the West have smartphones and we can really look up anything at the at the drop of a hat. Is our brain... You should have of, said at the touch of a button. It would have made way more sense. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Is our brain realizing this and taking cognitive shortcuts to allow for sort of a level of cognitive laziness in virtue of the fact that we do have this touch of a button memory available to us and i think that that's something that really only time will tell uh but it's it's something that we definitely need to consider in relation to kind of how it's going to affect us and individually and from a social and societal point of view long term yeah there are some studies done that would seem to indicate that google is definitely remapping our brain and the way that we think about things um Mm -hmm. the knowledge or the basically the way that it works um without our brain having to be remapped in any way is that when you want to know something and then you google it and then you find out what it is that rarely sticks in your mind i know you think that it does and yeah but it really doesn't yeah it absolutely doesn't there's a there's a really interesting thing written by a guy called nicholas carr if you search nicholas carr um that name rings a bell, actually. Yeah, he, he wrote a book called The Great Forgetting, I think it was, uh, which is yeah. about this topic. But before that, he wrote an article about it called Is Google Making Us Stupid? And it's on The Atlantic. It's from 2008. And okay. even though that's nearly 10 years ago, it feels perfectly relevant. And I recommend yeah. reading it. It's, it's quite long, but, I mean, it does um, basically explain what all of us are kind of thinking all the time is that it, taking these shortcuts are not really good for your long-term ability to yeah. remember or even perceive of the information that is going into your brain so yeah. it's i don't know like it's great that we have all of this information available to us and we want to know stuff like why is i slippery and you can google it and look at it and then that's it it goes away and then like you have no reason oh. to ever recall that again like you've you know? Yeah, and I, I remember reading a really interesting quote uh, one time. I was, I was reading an article, and it said that oftentimes we need to consider the brain as sort of an object that's looking after its own survival, that wants to stay in the gene pool, that's going to do anything it can to survive. And we nearly need to think of it in the same way we think about teeth and claws in animals. Sort of these things were developed because they provide some fundamental allowance for existence and the brain is in, in some ways no different to teeth and claws yeah uh, so that if, if we think about the fact that when we google something and look it up our brain isn't really going to hold on to that because that requires energy and expenditure and our brain is probably realizing well if you looked it up once you can look it up again why should i bother remembering it and that might seem silly like giving the brain a voice and kind of its own volitional thinking but it's, it's really not that far-fetched and like the subconscious and the ability of the brain to do things kind of under our conscious awareness and do things that really promote its own survival really seems to be the mainstay function of the brain. Yeah, I I think it would be really silly to ignore that 
as, a, as exactly. an idea. Like, it makes perfect sense. It, like, if you just think about the raw computing ability of the brain, yeah, it's really not far-fetched at all to consider at all. Yeah, and the fact that I kind of we are we are all based uh, on evolution, and we have all arrived at this moment in time due to evolution. Evolution is the ability to promote survival, and like the brain is possibly the most human brain is possibly the most complicated piece of matter we have in the known universe. So why wouldn't this be capable of doing these tasks, which really aren't that complicated if you look at them at face value? The most complicated thing, apart from women, am I right? God, <laughs> am I right? Am I right? What's up with those people? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's crazy, and it's not that we are specifically saying that, like, oh well, all of this Google is gonna over the passage of time eventually lead to a dumbed down brain. It's more the fact that like the children being raised now are being raised with Google. Like, there's yeah. no reason that you would ever have to even study for a test anymore if you were good enough at concealing exactly. your phone in a classroom. Yeah, like, that's totally. a crazy thing to think about. Not that I yeah. genuinely believe that those that the tests, um, the test system that we have in schools is actually that effective anyway because I think it is bizarre that I did German for three years of my life and passed it at every single exam I've ever done uh, with a pretty good mark and I couldn't even construct a sentence in German anymore apart from darf ich bitte auf the toilet which means can I go to the toilet so ja? <laughs> <laughs> that's Danke. I know. I, oh yeah I know Danke too or uh, ich bin in Berliner, yeah, yeah, or she lieb dick, which I think is hilarious because she lieb dick means she loves you. But if whenever whenever I hear it, I just hear she loves dick. <laughs> and this is a doctor, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> no, because like yeah, the, the Beatles actually because they were so big in Hamburg in Germany, uh, they re recorded she loves you in German. Ah, nice. Yeah, she lieb dick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that band, the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. They had some or, good uh, songs. Come give me deine hand. I think that means. I want to hold your hand. Exactly. Yeah. Come give me deine hand. I've no idea if I'm getting that right. I'm sorry if I'm getting it wrong. It's just I'm trying to remember something in German that I know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I don't know anything in German, and I did it for yeah. three years of my life. That's Jesus. That's crazy. Like. Yeah. That's um, uh, An Angela Merkel's fault. Yeah, oh yeah, that yeah. goddamn bitch taking all my money. Um, there was an interesting video there recently of her at this sort of political party gathering and there's some like other political associate waving a German flag and she just looks at him and like frowns and shakes her head and like takes the German flag off him as if she's ashamed to be German. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? It's like, how dare you have a German nationalist identity and be proud of being German? Don't you know we have non-Germans here? Yeah, and then it's like, yeah, but maybe the non-Germans are here because Germany is so great, in which case we should be proud. I just thought that was really interesting. It wasn't as if he was like holding a particular party flag or holding a particular caption. It was literally a German flag, and she looked at him so condescendingly before grabbing the flag off him and like giving it to one of her political aides to dispose of. I can only imagine it was incinerated after being gassed and then left. So, do you know what the Flynn effect is? Yes, I've heard of this actually, and as far as I understand it, it's the phenomenon that over the last number of decades, the 
average IQ of the human population has actually increased incrementally decade on decade. Yeah, yeah. Very, like, very um, persist or consistently every decade. For nearly 100 years, it was... Um, wow. The first calculation was in roughly the year 1930. And um, we don't really know what it means. Like, we do know that the average person alive now is more intelligent than the average person alive back then, but not in a relative sense like yeah the relative yeah. intelligence of a person was roughly the same like we know more now because yeah. we have more information available to us now and that's pretty much what it is um some people see it as proof that you know humanity is getting better and better and better other people just see like obvious examples of how we are a better society now like it's true that like crime is down significantly since then like we don't have as much racism or you know what i mean like society yes, is very different yeah. in a positive and progressive way um and then there are other people who just say that iq tests are bullshit <laughs> like mm. that they don't necessarily um pinpoint your actual intelligence you know what i mean like they're not really yeah, a measurement yeah. of intelligence they're just the sort of a well this person is good at solving problems or whatever i think yeah. it was einstein who famously said if you can't handle me at my worst you don't deserve me at my best <laughs> and... yeah yeah that was when he was wearing the white dress over That's the, right. uh, in new york yeah um after he sang happy birthday to the president pretty weird coming um, out of a birthday cake yes yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I've read this quote on the internet all the time about uh, uh, IQ tests don't measure anything, or if you want to measure a fish's intelligence by his ability to climb a tree, it's not really, uh, um, what's the word? It's representative not, yeah, or valid? representative of their actual intelligence. Yeah, true. And so, I don't know if Einstein actually said that, because like a lot of things that he's supposed to have said, he didn't actually say them. Um, yeah. But... Yeah. Well, what, what, I, what I would say about the IQ test is if, for instance, you went to NASA and you got the astrophysicist to perform on an IQ test and then you compared that with, say, blue collared workers in a particular profession, I don't want to discriminate or sound bad, I'm pretty sure that the astrophysicist in NASA would blow the blue collared workers out of the water. Yeah. So while you... I don't think you can kind of use it prognostically and say, oh, you did well in an IQ test, you'd be amazing at this. I'm sure that if you did it retrospectively and actually started in different prof professions and worked backwards, then you would find that there are significant and consistent differences between subgroups of the population. Yeah. I, th I think people are, are quite averse to say that some people are smarter than others as well because we like to think, oh, we're all the same and we're all intelligent in our own way, which... Like the cynic in me wants to say that that's bullshit and that like kind of there probably is the bell curve of intelligence and people probably fall either side of the mean in roughly the same pattern. Yeah. But See, I do think that it's not it's not the perfect uh, demonstrator of intelligence, but I think it's probably the best we have. What do you think is what do you think intelligence is like i don't mean the actual dictionary mm. definition of it but like yeah. let's say you and i are quite clearly intellectuals and mm -hmm. like we're quite clearly intelligent people because mm -hmm. we can talk about all these things and we can draw our own conclusions and like just the way that we can hypothesize and, and the way that we naturally uh, come to the conclusions that are oftentimes correct and things like that but yeah. like <laughs> let's say a nuclear holocaust occurred 
and we had to go back to starting from scratch, I would be the biggest retard in that society. Like, yeah, I, I can't do fucking anything with my hands at all. I yeah. can't make anything. I can't cook anything. I'm such a fussy eater that I would literally die of starvation before I'd eat a fucking rabbit yeah. or a worm or whatever. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's... Totally. I, I'm not sure that that's necessarily a measurement of my intelligence, or, the, or but the people who would thrive in that civilization... They exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exist among us, and they don't get classed as intelligent. And I think that that's stupid. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely in a way. And I think that that kind of there's an interesting dichotomy in the in- intelligence debate, and and that's between fluid and crystallized intelligence. Have you ever come across that? Uh, yes, I have actually. And yeah. The Flynn effect actually proves a rise in both fluid and crystallized intelligence. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is interesting. So for your listeners, just to kind of explain what, what's meant by those, crystallized intelligence is that sort of intelligence that maybe your grandparents still exhibit in that they still know how to drive, they can still perform really well in crosswords, they can still do countdown really well. These They're things still are nervous sort of... when there's a black person around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know that grandparent. <laughs> clutches her handbag. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So that sort of thing is crystallized intelligence in that it's sort of an ingrained form of intelligence that is almost characteristic of repeating the same behaviors again and again in a way that is almost like kind of an expert level behavior, like driving. They're still perhaps quite good drivers, even though they might find it impossible when you hand your smartphone over them to even find the call button. Whereas fluid intelligence is that level of intelligence that's kind of more characteristic of a younger age where you could hand somebody, say a kid, a smartphone or a tablet when they're used to one or the other, and they'll actually be able to adapt to the new piece of technology because they can sort of fill in the blanks from their schema about tablets or phones from what they know already. And they can sort of, it's a much more sort of roll with the punches sort of intelligence where it's much more malleable and can be basically applied to numerous different scenarios and situations based on their previous knowledge of things like that. They're not sort of stuck in a regimented form of kind of, oh, no, I need this particular one in order to know how to work it. They can sort of infer and use sort of inductive reasoning to get them through it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, too. And it is interesting that the Flynn effect proves that there are increases in both of those things, of both yeah, of those, yeah. uh, different levels of intelligence, so or yeah. different different types of intelligence rather. Exactly. Um, yeah. So yeah, I I think that the Flynn effect is very significant in the sense that it shows that the information available to us is perhaps far more substantial and just greater than before. Yeah. But uh, my story about the you know nuclear holocaust and how we would adapt to that is sort of I I don't know I I just. I think that it's great that we are that much more intelligent, but what does it really mean? Yeah. Um, if something were like, if all of the things that we spoke about up to this point, like let's say if a government were, they were doctoring photos, they were censoring the media, they um, forced the ideological bubble upon you, what would your Flynn effect um, considered intelligence do about that? Because of how malleable the you know memory is like human yeah memory, so, yeah yeah, um, totally, yeah yeah it's it's not really like i'm not trying to disprove it or anything but just to say that it's to me it just kind of makes sense it doesn't really yeah yeah it doesn't prove that we are special 
No, or more, or more intelligent either. If, yeah. you, if you think about it, the fact that like you only have to spend five minutes on Facebook before you're bombarded with all these. Can you pass this test? Can you pass that yes. test? We have we have a lot more exposure to the types of tests that are used in IQ tests, and so there's often a lot of learned effects. So that when we're actually presented with the actual IQ test at a particular time, we've probably seen a lot of the questions already because yeah. they're so much more ubiquitous. And that could be what the Flynn effect is actually measuring is or, or, or the fact that we've seen a lot of the questions before and throughout the decade to decade, we just see more and more of the same questions. And therefore, of course, we're going to do better decade on decade. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense as well, because a lot of these things do just kind of become understood intuitively by the culture that they're creating. Exactly. Yeah, 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 it, totally. It, like, even if you on a really simplistic level, if you think about your ability to quote a movie that you've never seen before, like, mm. you know, the way everyone just knows that at some point, Darth Vader says, I am your father even yeah. if you haven't seen it. Like, I know that's such a weird analogy to make, but when you are on Facebook and you see those pictures pop up, you are gaining some level of knowledge about a of thing course, that you don't yeah, actually yeah. know about. So. And now the fact that memes have incorporated themselves so much into sort of the public uh, consciousness, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, memes are carrying on and, and sort of conveying information in a way that didn't really exist pre-internet era. Yeah, yeah. You know? And that is definitely like a meme, like, you know what I mean? I am your father, a picture of Darth Vader and just everything that it represents. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. In fact, the whole concept of a meme and not that we on the internet know of it, but the concept of a meme being like a sort of a a cultural, like, being, an entity that can evolve, you know, an idea that can evolve just as a human can and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Is, is really interesting. I'd like to discuss yeah. that more on the podcast, but I'm not really yeah. sure how I could incorporate it into an episode, but I'm sure we'll figure it out. And um, I think it was Richard Dawkins who actually yeah. coined the term. Yeah, 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 I think so, yeah. And if, yeah. if he didn't coin it, he definitely popularized the notion of it. Exactly. Yeah, no, I, I think even further than popularized, I'm pretty sure he coined it. Yeah. Uh, and I think it stems from the selfish gene, his famous book. Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. Possibly. Um, did you know that uh, Richard Dawkins doesn't believe in God? What? Crazy, isn't it? <laughs> Very crazy. Um, but what about his famous book, God and Me? <laughs> or, um, yeah, that's uh, true. The Jesus in All of Us. <laughs> the audio book narrated by Ricky Gervais. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, he's also big into God. Yeah, mad into God. He only tweets about 25 times a day about God. So yeah, that's yeah. good. That's what I like. I love a good atheist who preaches while simultaneously hating Christians for preaching. Um, so anyway, um, to move into the last part of this episode and tie everything together, um, I want to talk about the notion of objective truth and how difficult it is to perceive um, irrespective of the internet and stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. We can never really know what true objective truth is because as we said earlier, if one person is saying A and two people are saying B and they argue about it forever, the two people are the ones who are right there. Because yes, they're yeah. both, you know, they're the majority, and that's yeah. the way that it is. Um, and so I did want to talk a little bit about um, the post-truth era that we live in, or mm -hmm. I guess the concept of post-truth, and it's this idea that 
Um, you can make people believe in things that are not necessarily true if you appeal to their emotive side rather than their calculating side because mm -hmm. generally humans don't actually respond very well to numbers and statistics and stuff like that because our brains were not designed to our brains are more so designed for emotive purposes such as defending your family or you know uh, helping exactly. your family survive and things like that um and so when Donald Trump stood at his rally in, uh, was it North Carolina, like three days before he was announced as the president-elect of the United States and said that the murder rate was at a 45-year high, when in fact it is nowhere near that number, and that mm -hmm. it has actually gone down year on year since the 60s. But he said that and people believed it, and no yeah. one calls him out on it anymore because he has said so many things like this that it's yeah. not even worth the media's while calling him on it anymore and yeah. it's things like that that helped him get elected um it's a thing called political engineering and there's a guy who um is one of putin's advisors or one of his main uh, like he's pretty much his right hand guy in the kremlin his name is vladislav surkov and I've spoken about him before on the podcast. He he is credited with inventing a new political language. And if you don't know what something like that means, um, it is really difficult to explain. But basically, he's he's a guy who's like shrouded in secrecy anyway. Um, if you look him up, he looks like exactly like Mr. Bean, but he dresses like Kanye West or someone. When, when he's when he's not in his like, I mean, usually you'll see him in a suit, right? Because he's a politician. But he had like an Instagram page for a while where it shows his fashion sense, and he is like dresses like Kanye. He has like pictures of like Che Guevara and stuff like that in his office. Um, he no one even knows where he's born. Like, nobody knows where he's from. There's conflicting reports of pretty much every single thing about this guy. Um, mm. I think he's in his 50s or late 40s at the moment. And basically, he's the guy who is credited with coming up with this notion of uh, what's called sovereign democracy, which is the um, sort of method of, uh, of political ruling that Russia uses. And it's basically like, they're a democracy, but come on you know what i mean like, yeah they're a democracy yeah. but they're absolutely not a democracy and there's a reason that vladimir putin in spite of um the fact that he's not really uh like he's he's not favorited by most of the population in russia but he gets in because they have this ability to engineer to politically engineer a situation whereby he seems like the best choice and that is um the method that they use, like the methodology, is all about confusing and shape-shifting and never really making it obvious what the actual truth is or what their actual fixed ideology is. Like Vladislav Surkov, Vladislav Surkov at separate, um, in separate moves at the same time, was funding right-wing Nazi groups and far-left communist groups. Like, he funds protesters and then funds the things that they're protesting against he puts money into rival political groups so that they can get up and then he can tear them down again you know what i mean like he wow yeah nobody knows anything about what he's doing like and it's just constantly shape-shifting it's like just this really complex way of maintaining the power that they have and like no literal political yeah. engineering yeah yeah absolutely and no one really knows what the end game is like no one really knows what 
Russia are doing in Syria. I say this a lot, and people, some people go, yeah, true, and other people go, are you serious? Syria is Russia's last stronghold in the world. Of course they want to maintain, but it's like, yeah. they said that they were leaving there in March of last year, and they held a concert to celebrate and everything like that, and they're still there. Like, nobody yeah. knows what their end game is, but we do know that Vladislav Surkov has initiated um, this thing that's called non-linear war, and that Russia's involvement in Syria is the first instance of non-linear warfare, and it's basically a style of war that's designed to just keep the battle on going to see what they can get from it, and then yeah. see what happens. It's all about manipulation, and it's all about maintaining power, and constantly being in a position of strength, whereby you are the one pulling the strings or you're the one that has the leverage and exactly yeah this style of of politics was sort of mirrored in donald trump's rise to presidency which at times seemed like he was doing all he could to not get elected and because of this constant the constant shape-shifting nature of donald trump and the fact that he has no fixed ideology and the fact that like in one instance he's holding up an LGBT flag and then in another he's making fun of a disabled reporter with that horrible impression that he did on it like yeah. you know what I mean like he seems like a really compassionate guy in some senses like when he was talking yeah. about um the veterans and PTSD and he he said like yeah it's terrible I, I hate that that's a thing that's something that I really want to work at. and then like two minutes later he's making fun of a disabled reporter with like he couldn't even show the fucking self control or the restraint to just not do the impression like yeah yeah because of that constant shape-shifting nature of what he did you like it confused people enough or it captivated enough people or whatever yeah, it yeah. was um it certainly garnered media attention anyway mm. and considering the influence that the media has in like public consciousness it, it, it seems like that's nearly sufficient yeah. in order to, to to turn people one way or the other yeah and i will say like i do think that donald trump is an intellectual problem for the world like i don't think that mm. he is capable of uh, he's just he doesn't have the basic levels of competency required like his skin is way too thin like he's a man driven by revenge yeah. and spite and pettiness rather than exactly yeah but what i will say about him is that i don't actually think he's an idiot i think he's very 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 intelligent and very shrewd yeah yes very tactical and strategic in his thinking. And prudent, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and Ivanka's a fucking ride. <laughs> well, he certainly thinks so. But, um, yeah, totally, that was very weird. He's definitely been in her. <laughs> definitely wants well, to be. Anyway. She's been in there too, just uh, way back when. <laughs> yeah, but that whole thing is creepy as fuck. But, yeah. Um, yeah, so... Yeah the concept of objective truth in this society what is it and how do we achieve it when there are people who are like yeah obama is definitely a muslim and you're like no 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 here's the birth cert and they're like no 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 and it's, it's just the cognitive dissonance that allows a person to see empirical evidence and to just switch off that part and be like nope that's fake and etc so yeah could a government control our thoughts, given everything we've spoken about, about, like, the fallibility of memory and just how malleable our perceptions are? Like, you know, it... Like, yeah, yeah. I think there's plenty of precedent to show that we could totally be controlled. <laughs> no, exactly, yeah. And I think as well, from a political kind of... The, the political 
public sphere, if we think about like the media as almost being akin to senses we have in the personal sphere, then by altering kind of the, the public sense, as in through the media, like it can just totally change what we perceive and how we perceive it in a way that probably we can't even imagine yeah. at the time it's happening. It's yeah. the idea of Obama not being born in America or Obama being a Muslim. The only reason that exists in public consciousness is because somebody said it and then the papers went crazy with it and it was plastered everywhere like Obama Muslim. Is Obama Muslim? Obama Muslim. Obama Muslim question mark. You know what I mean? And yeah. enough people saw it enough times that it became a talking point. And Donald Trump yeah. was like, I remember Donald Trump dedicating months of his life to fighting yeah. on Twitter about this, saying that he knows people. Lots of people he knows are saying that there's a the tremendous chance. The best people. <laughs> Trust me, folks. I have spoken to these people and they'll tell you he is yeah. definitely a Muslim. And Trump is like, I'll, I'll give $5 million to charity if you show your birth cert. And Obama's like, here's my birth cert, you bunch of weird motherfuckers that yeah. have nothing better to do with your time. And then Trump's like, ugh. <laughs> Did you give that money to charity? Nope. Like, yeah. It's so weird. I'm charity. I gave it to me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's crazy that that totally. is like how the world we live in has come to be like a situation where you have a bunch of people who are all faced with the same reality the same truth the same you know we all live in yeah, the same, like objective yeah. world but different factors and different things and all of these things like they just play a huge part in your cognitive understanding of how things yeah. are and that's frightening and captivating and interesting too like and there's a really good cartoon, actually, that comes to mind. It's two people standing at opposite ends of the number nine or number six. And one of them is like, that's the number nine. And the other, obviously, looking at it from the other side, is like, no, that's the number six. You know what I mean? It's like just perfectly sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really like the idea of, like, if you consider everything that the NSA knows and already mm. has and like everything that Google knows, like all of this information about people and about citizens is already there. So yeah. like if somebody wanted to, like if the right person gets in power, I know Congress is set up in America and we talk about America because let's face it, it's our main point for the politics of a superpower because we know a lot about America because all the yeah. movies are American and stuff. Um, but yeah, like all of that information is there. So it's possible, like it is actually possible for an an authoritarian government to rise and exactly, yeah, for their shadow to spread across the globe, like yeah. And and that's why I think like uh, a lot of people are still very much for the ability to bear arms, is because it's still quite conceivable that this sort of army powered by the government could come into force and kind of take hold of the nation yeah as kind of crazy as it sounds and as uh, Alex Jonesy as it sounds yeah yeah well I'm sure Cletus and his revolver will definitely fight off the American drones yeah exactly <laughs> like yeah because when I I usually say yeah as if the fucking American
Folks, it turns out it was government totalitarianism all along, trying to control your minds. I really hope that episode made sense, though, as a concept. It was one that I thought up when I was thinking about how fallible memory is and how people could kind of use that against you. So um, that was my topic. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, please leave a like on the episode. It really does make a difference to my ego and to nothing else other than my ego. But to me... That's the most important thing. We're closing the episode out with a song called Malleable Beings, which is the opening track from an album called States by a band called The Paper Kites. As far as I know, they're Australian and they're absolutely awesome. There's something really innately relaxing about their music and just, I don't know, I, I listen to it in work sometimes and I just feel like nothing in the world can bother me. If it sounds like it's raining outside next to the song, that's because... I also put in the sounds from a website called Rainy Mood, which is rainymood.com, and it's a website that I have been using for about five years to relax. Like, you just put on any album you want. Like, one I'd really recommend is an album called, and by the way, this is for the four people that listen to what I have to say about music, but there's an album called Things We Lost in the Fire by a band called Low, and I can only listen to that album if it's accompanied by rainymood.com, so... Haven't been paid to say that, it's just genuinely really relaxing to hear the sound of rain, so I included it here. And I'm also maybe attempting to skirt the copyright laws somewhat, and hoping that the sound of rain overpowers the software that detects whether or not you're using copyrighted music. So anyway, it's the end of the episode. I would like it if you left a like, and check out The Paper Kites and their album States, because it's awesome. And the follow-up to it, 12.4, is also awesome. Um, but I haven't listened to it as much, so I can't really recommend it that highly. But we spoke a lot about how malleable the human memory is and sort of how the human state of mind can be when we spoke about fixed ideologies and things like that. So I feel like it's an appropriate song. And also, this is the midnight hour and it goes up pretty late and it's always closed out with soothing songs that put people to sleep long after my voice has already put you to sleep. So anyway, I've been El Nero. Thanks.